So just a, a quick reminder of why we are studying the Psalms of Ascent. I told y'all I would do this every week, so it's kind of burned into our minds by the time we're done with this. But the Psalms of Ascent, remember, there's kind of a fourfold reasons why they, they could have been written. They could have been written as far as their poetic structure. They were arranged in an ascending way. They could have been written as far as the exiles returning from Babylon. They're singing these. They're ascending back to Jerusalem. They could have been written as they're being sung on the steps, as they're ascending the steps from one court of the temple into another. And they could have been written, this is the most common view, as they're the men specifically or any of the family members of the members of Israel are singing these as they're ascending to Jerusalem for the feast days. Okay. So it's the same way. These are, you know, those kind of focus as sort of a prelude or an introduction or the opening act to the primary worship service that is going on in Jerusalem. We're kind of using these as the same way because Sunday school is kind of like that. That's what I kind of view Sunday school as. This is the, the opening act to the primary worship service that we're going to go into in just a minute. And so that's, that's why we're here. It also serves as kind of a settling time. It's kind of a time to get our hearts oriented in the right direction, to, to come from the, the hustle and bustle of trying to get here and the hustle and bustle of the week to get ready for the, the primary worship service that we're about to enter into. So let's, let's use them this way. Just uh, another quick reminder, throughout these 15 psalms where we're taking a journey here, it's part of the poetic ascent of the psalms themselves. So on, you're on this journey. As they're on the physical journey, they're taking a journey through psalm too. And on this journey, each psalm has been arranged in the succession to have this ascending effect, like I said. And so whenever you get to the final 15, you're at the height of the psalms of ascent. And we'll see that in a couple weeks. So it's helpful, because we're on this journey, it's helpful to rehearse where we've been so far. First, you started the journey in Psalm 120, very downtrodden, separated from the people of God and surrounded by those who want war. And you're moving on, you remind ourselves that the help for the journey comes only through Yahweh, who will forever keep us and will forever protect us. Then we rejoice at our arrival in Jerusalem and pray for her peace and unity. While there, we look upon the Lord with this longing gaze and we we beg for his mercy and relief upon us. Then we move on to celebrate God for his providence towards us and his guiding hand of protection. And then finally, last week, we were back extolling the glories of being physically and spiritually in Mount Zion, and the blessed peace that exists there. We are truly blessed to be coming into the Lord's presence each and every Lord's Day. So that's the reminder here. Truly blessed to be coming into the Lord's presence each and every Lord's Day, just like those pilgrims that were coming into the temple. That served as a reminder to them. It's a reminder to us. So, with that being said, let's explore the songs that God has given us for this day. First, we're going to be Psalm 126. So if you turn there, we'll read it together. Psalm 126. Psalm 126, a song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Psalm 126. So here... 
We have three parts. We have a song, a prayer, and a promise. Verses 1 through 3 set forth a song of praise. Verse 4 gives a brief prayer. And then verses 5 and 6 exclaims a confident, expectant promise here. So first of all, we have a song here in verses 1 through 3. Let's read that again. Verses 1 through 3. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We're glad. So this could be a description of many events of the history of Israel. You see that? I mean, this, this, this could be a description of any of the things that goes on in the history of Israel. Israel gets herself into a bind somehow. God comes in as deliverer and brings her back. See this all throughout the Old Testament. They're coming from Egypt into Canaan. That's what happens. The period of the judges over and over and over again. Israel gets itself in a bind. God brings them back as the deliverer. This happens in the Assyrian invasion, especially into Judah. And then most likely the context of this psalm, the exile to Babylon and the return of the people 70 years later. Anytime the fortunes of God's people were restored, every time God displayed his faithfulness despite the people's rebellion. And the results were surreal. It describes them here in Psalm 120, end of verse 1. It says, we were like those who dream. So you get this surreal aspect here because God keeps doing this for us. This was all of God. Remember, the people here, they brought nothing to make this restoration happen. They, I mean, they were just... Israel wrestles with God constantly. God keeps bringing them back. And every time it's like a dream. But the people do have a response here, starting in verse 2. It's unspeakable joy that they have. All they can do is laugh about it and then shout for joy, praising God for restoring them. And then this has an additional effect. So their shouts of joy and their laughter has this effect. Among the nations, the nations see Yahweh for who he is. Repentant hearts and changed lives that accompany them are some of the greatest evangelical tools that can be that can be willed. After conversion, people take notice. People say that man's fortunes have been restored. He's not like he used to be. His pride has been destroyed. And now an indescribable joy has come over him. This laughter, this joy. There can only be one explanation for this radical change in disposition. Something supernatural has happened. In other words, the Lord has done great things for him. This is what happens. This is the evangelical tool that Israel's wielding here, that we can wield whenever the lives are changed and the disposition is changed and the laughter and the joy comes forth. The Lord has done great things for this person. The Lord has done great things for them. This is the same message that Peter and the Paul, that Paul and other, the other apostles are preaching in the book of Acts. They say, the king, the Messiah, the chosen one, the one ordained to crush the head of the serpent, he's here, he's alive, he has done great things for us. This is the primary message of the book of Acts. Jesus has done great things for us. Come, join us, devote your life to his service. And then the nations respond in Acts, Specifically in Acts, you see this over and over. Yeah, yeah, the Lord has done great things for them. Let's go. Let's join them. Because he has done great things for them. That's the same thing the psalm is saying here. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. We are joyful. 
And then verse 4. Verse 4 comes with a prayer. It says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. So the Negev, a bit more about Israel's geography and topography here. The Negev was a dry and barren desert that was started right south of Jerusalem. So if you picture Israel, its combined kingdom, Jerusalem's kind of right at the north of Judah, like right here, northern kingdom of Israel here, Judah's here. The Negev starts south of Judah and just runs completely south all throughout Judah. And the Negev was completely dry and bare. Nothing grew there. It's just a wasteland. It's even like that to this day. But when heavy rains would fall on northern Israel and they'd fall on Jerusalem, then the Negev would flood, become flooded. And whenever it would flood, this would spring forth all kind of vegetation. Normally, this dry, barren wasteland would spring forth vegetation and even it would spring forth a lot of beautiful flowers. So this prayer then is a petition for God to flood his blessings upon his people. So you've got these shouts of joy, then you've got a prayer for God to bring his blessings forth like a flood. This psalm, like so many of the psalms of ascent, really shows kind of the ebbs and the flows of of the Christian life. See this all throughout the psalms of ascent. You'll see it throughout them as the whole and them as individual psalms. The Christian life has ebbs and flows. There can be moments full of shouts of joy, followed by seasons of a dry wasteland, pain, or apathy even. And then the response should be then, like this verse, if you're going through some sort of dry period, if you're going through something like the negative, you should pray like this. Restore my fortune, O Lord. Send the streams of your sweet grace. Let the waters gush forth and flood my life with your favor. It's an honorable prayer. It's what the Israelites are praying for here when they're singing this song. And then you extend this to the church. You extend this prayer to the church. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Let the church return to a place of prominence that you once enjoyed. Let the flood of the Spirit sweep across our land and indeed the entire earth. Revive the dry ground. Make life spring forth. Bring forth some flowers, God. It's the same thing we pray here. Same thing we pray as believers for our individual lives, for our families, for the church in general. Bring forth your flood of blessings, Lord. Bring it forth. And then finally, we have the expectant promise of verses 5 and 6. Read verses 5 and 6 again with me. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seeds for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's what he says in the second beatitude of the Sermon on the Mount. We've been through this a couple months ago. So we get the promise here. The Christian life is going to be full of sorrows. There's a cost associated with following the king. There's going to be pain and suffering. Cannot escape this until Jesus returns. But what follows the darkness of night is joy of the morning. The psalm says... That the seeds planted here are the tears of the saints. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Sowing seeds, the seeds are the tears here. It's the tears of the saints. But if you sow in tears, you're going to reap with shouts of joy. The tears are necessary for the joy. The laws of agriculture dictate that a dying must take place before there is a fruitful gathering. The seed must die to yield the plant. In John chapter 12, turn there with me, 
John chapter 12. Verses 20 through 25. That's what it says. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered him. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Jesus uses the same metaphor here. In verse 5 of Psalm 126, it says, Those who sow in tears will reap shouts of joy. And then verse 6 is, Bearing the seed for sowing shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The same agriculture metaphor here that Jesus is using. He says, Someone must give up his own life to become part of the kingdom. The death of the old man must occur before the fruit comes. But the fruit is oh so sweet here. Following Jesus leads to an eternal life. And even more blissful, look at the the last the last sentence there, the last phrase, the last sentence of, of John twelve twenty six. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You got the creator of the world, the all powerful deity, almighty God himself is going to honor the person who serves the Son person who made everything is going to show you honor you know if we were you know if we were in a monarchical society and a king shows you honor it's a great privilege but you got the king showing you honor if you serve jesus what could be greater than that right so our society it doesn't value honor like it should more concerned with our own self-promotion and you know fulfilling our own desires and being seen than being seen as men and women of honor and this should not be the case Honor should be something that you strive towards. And what could be better than being being seen as honorable before God? And Jesus offers that very thing, if you serve him. He who serves me, the Father will honor him. So that's what we look forward to here. But this honor comes with seeds of weeping, seeds of sorrow. Then the joy comes, the joy of being honored by the Father. So... Let's sing a song here to our great God and Savior. Sing Psalm 126. Does everybody have a copy? Psalm 126 in your Psalter there. We're going to sing this to the tune of Come Thou Almighty King. Give us a lead in. We'll start out. Zion's captive one at by the Lord return how like a dream our mouth 
Psalm 127 then. Psalm 127. Let's read it together. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Psalm 127. Here we have one of two psalms that the superscription tells us were written by Solomon. The other being Psalm 72, which is a kingly psalm. And man, is this, this is classic Solomon. If you read this, this is it's reads just like something that Solomon wrote, right? The book, the book's broken. I mean, the psalm is broken into two sections here. Verses one and two read something that I mean, this looks like it's something from Ecclesiastes, right? If you just read them again, it looks like just like something that was written in Ecclesiastes, which Solomon also wrote, right? So I, I really, I like the book of Ecclesiastes, which may seem kind of strange. A lot of people, it's kind of weird. Um, it's kind of, you know, it's poetic, it's mopey, it's kind of dark in some places. It's kind of like an emo song from the early 2000s or something, right? Ecclesiastes, it really is. Um, and if you were like extracted from its biblical context, you might like say like, you know, Frederick Nietzsche wrote this thing or something like that. But just when you think Solomon and Ecclesiastes is going to end with some like whimper of nihilism after all of this moping and stuff that he's done for 12 chapters, you get to the end of it in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. And this is how it ends. This is a great ending for everything that's said before that. It says, in the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So Solomon here, he says, in the end, nothing else. That's kind of the whole point of the whole book. Nothing else matters. All this other stuff does not matter if you have not feared the Lord. That's the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes. So everything in life that you might have built, everything that you think you might have accomplished, everything that you hold dear is nothing if you have discarded your love for God, all this stuff is completely meaningless. It's a vapor. It evaporates away. And that's how Solomon opens Psalm 127. Building a house is completely useless unless the Lord builds it. The people that attempted to build the Tower of Babel found this out the hard way, right? You know, the, the, the tower itself... You know, just the fact that they were trying to build a big structure wasn't necessarily the problem. 
It was that they were trying to usurp God's role in this. They were making themselves gods whenever they were building the, the Tower of Babel. So God had to frustrate these plans, had to go in and confuse their language and completely destroy the tower. Because they were doing this out of their own pride, not out of the glory of God. So God wasn't building it, so it was bound for destruction. Blessing is never going to come to a house that does not love God. It's the same thing with a city. Solomon first says a house is vain if it's built in a city. Its protection is vain if the God is not protecting the city. So the Israelites knew this all too well. All throughout their history, when God removes his hand of protection from a city, the city is then vulnerable to attack. And the watchman's activities, the watchmen who are sitting on the wall, making sure that there are no enemies coming, all these things, yeah, it doesn't mean anything. It mean nothing without God on their side. The same thing goes for any of the work that we attempt in our building or our protection or anything like that. You can work as hard as you possibly can, but it means absolutely nothing if it is solely for ourselves and is not blessed by the Lord. The food that we eat, even if it's a product of our honest gain, can't be truly enjoyed without recognizing that every bite is a gift from our benevolent gift giver. It says that here, eating the bread of anxious toil. So Jesus praised this in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. In many of Jesus' examples, he blesses the food before he partakes of it, recognizing that every bite we get is from God, and that settles our anxiety from it. This can't be truly enjoyed. The food can't be truly enjoyed unless it's recognized as a gift. And then even sleep. Your slumber is a gift that comes from God to those whom he calls beloved, for he gives his beloved sleep. So, It's God who provides personal prosperity. It's God who provides personal security. It's God who rules. It's God who defends and protects. And it's God who gives the sustenance of food and sleep. It's God. It's God who is in control, taking care of me. You have to recognize this. You can prepare, you can plan, do all these things, but it's God who's providing and protecting for me. And it's all because God loves me. It says this. He gives this to his beloved. And then this moves directly into the second part of Psalm 127. It's God who provides meaningful relationships in the form of children. A heritage from the Lord is what it says. Children are a heritage from the Lord. A reward. Fruit of the broom. So we're reward. And in this part of the psalm, so if the first two verses sound like something that was taken right out of Ecclesiastes, to me, verses 3 through 5 sound like something that's taken right from Proverbs. Solomon wrote most of the Proverbs. So like I said, the classic Solomon, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs covered here. And these verses, they're really, they're in complete opposition to the world that we live in. They really are, you know, especially in the form of seeing the blessing that children are. Y'all, y'all ever heard of um, this philosophy called antinatalism? Some of y'all probably have. This is the idea that, that people should not be having children. The various reasons, you know, it's bad for the environment, it's bad for those who are already alive, all these junk reasons, you know. People should not be having children. It's completely demonic, completely opposed to the Word of God. The command from God is very clear. 
is to fill the earth, be fruitful, and multiply. But even if you don't, those who don't explicitly subscribe to the philosophy that everyone in all places should not be having children, and we should just all die out, I guess, I don't really know what the, what the teleology is here, I don't know. Um, but even those who don't explicitly subscribe to that, they, they allow this to invade their thinking in a lot of other ways, to, allow, to invade their worldview. So here, here's, I'm going to read a tweet, and I don't normally do this in Sunday school, because first of all, I don't have Twitter. I just stumble upon things from time to time. But here's a, here's a tweet, an actual tweet from someone who is famous for no good reason at all. I won't name the person, but they're famous just because they were in a certain place at a certain time, and that's really it. But here's the tweet. I'm never planning on having kids. I would much rather own a Porsche and have a Portuguese water dog and a golden doodle. Long term, it's cheaper, better for the environment, and will never tell you that it hates you or asks you to pay for college. Jeez. What a uh, nihilistic, completely devoid of anything that's, you know, ugh, this terrible worldview. You know, this, this is the view, though, that children are a burden, though. They're too much of a financial strain, or they might cause me some sort of emotional distress. They're going to they're gonna ruin my vision for my life. No, this is completely in opposition to what God says. Children are a heritage from the Lord, a reward. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver full of them. That's the pattern here. That's God's design for blessing upon the world. And you see this all throughout the Old Testament because because the family takes a massive prominence in the Old Testament. All of Israel's civil laws are really defined around the family. All of God's covenants in the Old Testament had the family as its basic structure. If you look at them all, you know, the covenant of works from, with Adam, Noahic covenant, Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, all of these, they have families as their basic structure. They're underlying them, at least. It's inescapable. And this, is, this concept is transported over to the New Testament, except for a very select few of people that God has set apart for his service. But for the vast, vast majority of humanity, the pattern is very clear. Get married, have babies. That's kind of the, that's, that's the, that's the pattern here. Get married, have babies. And both of these things are a sign of the Lord's blessings. So, with this, you thank God, if you're reading this whole psalm, you thank God if he's given you a house, first of all. You thank God if he protects you when you sleep, when he gives you food to eat each and every day. You thank God for giving you children. We, we owe God so much. Our ingratitude, even as believers, this is something that is a temptation for all of us, even as believers, is something that you constantly have to fight against. You never to put trust in the pride of your own abilities to provide for yourself. Because it's all from God. It's the Lord who gives and it's the Lord who takes away. So in response to all these things, let us praise God for his promises. Let us praise God for his providence. Let's praise God for his restoration. Let's praise God that he comforts those who mourn. Let's praise God with shouts of joy for his provision, his prosperity, his loving kindness, and his inheritance that he promises to us. So in light of all that, let's sing Psalm 127 to our great God.
Psalm 127. We're going to sing this to the tune of I greet thee who my sure redeemer art.